I also feel I should commend this book, though I, ha- though I haven't read it. <laughs> I think I've probably read everything else that Sinclair's written, and, and on the basis of that, I, I feel confident enough to, to recommend this book to you. If you have Bibles with you, perhaps you could turn with me to, uh, to Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the book of Romans. Read just a few verses from chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then again verses 16 and 17. I'm, I'm reading from the, from the ESV, the English Standard Version, so if that's not yours, uh, forgive me. Hopefully it won't be too different. Well, there we read these words, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then again, if you can look down, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, and it is indeed to you that we turn in these moments. We have really very little interest in hearing the words or the thoughts of a man, however well-intentioned. No, Lord, it is our great desire and prayer that we hear from the living God this morning. So take your word and by your spirit bring it home to bear upon our minds and upon our hearts that we might hear, that we might understand and that in the understanding we might obey to follow you more closely, to be more courageous in sharing the hope that we have entered into, or perhaps, perhaps even for some, to embrace it for themselves. Father, we pray that you would have your way amongst us this morning, and we ask it in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, again, thank you for your welcome here this morning. It's good to be with you. And of course, I bring you the greetings of my own church family, Central Baptist Church. I, I do want you to know that we, we pray for you often as a congregation here and that we are so very thankful, so very thankful for your gospel witness here in this city of ours. But what is the gospel? What is the gospel and who is it for? That's a vital question, isn't it, for all of us every day? And perhaps especially for those of you who are gathered this morning at the beginning of a week of events and of outreach on your campus. Well, to remind us of that, do look with me at these verses that we've read in the opening of the book of Romans. We're only going to scratch the surface even of chapter 1 this morning, but I think that will be enough, more than enough, for us to understand 
because notwithstanding the fact, as we read earlier, that of course all Scripture is God-breathed. Romans maybe maybe more than any other book of the Bible, makes clear for us the the central saving message of Christianity, what Paul here calls the the gospel of God. And as such, it's a book that has changed and continues to change people, men and women, right throughout the world. The church father, Augustine, was saved, you probably know, out of a life of wasted abandonment while he was reading it. Calvin, Calvin called it his entrance into all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. It was instrumental in the conversion of Martin Luther and flowing from that, the Reformation that spread throughout all of Europe as a monk. Luther had been taught all of his life that God required him to live a righteous life in order to be saved. And so he tried And he tried, and he tried, and he tried. He tried to climb that ladder that would get him up towards heaven. And he failed. And he failed. And he failed, and he failed. So much so that he said he began to hate God. To hate God for requiring of him what he could not do, and then leaving him to fail. But when he grasped the meaning of Romans 1.17, which we've just read, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, by faith. Or if you're using the NIV, in the gospel, a, a righteousness is revealed that is by faith from first to last. Well, here's what he said. When I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by through which grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. Well, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the doors of paradise. Luther wrote, I broke through. The reason that Romans has proved so life-changing and indeed history-shaping down through the centuries is because, Romans, it's all about the gospel of God and it's all about who that gospel is for. In verses 1 through 7, Paul, he, writing to the church in Rome, he, he writes to introduce his gospel. And the word itself, the word itself, you'll know, I'm sure, it means literally good news or, or good herald. It was a term that was used to announce something momentous, like the birth of an emperor or a decisive military victory. So news, but not just any news, important news, good news, news worth celebrating. And so when we consider this gospel, we have to remind ourselves that it's not just good advice. Gospel does not simply give to us a, a, a moral or ethical code to live by. No, it's good news. Good news about something that has happened. And it is, says Paul, the gospel, the good news of God. It's not Paul's, it's not yours, it's not mine, it's not ours to do with as we please. No liberty to tamper with it or modify it or remove from it anything we might think might be unappealing if we don't like it. 
If we don't like it, then our problem is not with Paul, it is with God. And Paul describes himself as its servant, as an apostle, as one set apart by God to be one of that foundational, never-to-be-repeated group of apostles of the church of Jesus Christ, called, instructed, trained, and authorized by the risen Christ to do what? To preach the gospel of God And especially, in Paul's case, to preach the gospel of God to the nations of the world. But what actually is this gospel that Paul is committed to proclaiming? Now, it is absolutely crucial that we get this right. Because the Bible says that we are saved by faith in the gospel. So in order to be saved, you need to know what it is. If you want others to be saved, you need to know what it is in order to be able to share it well. So what does Paul say about it? Well, it's not just any news, it's God's good news, so we need to pay attention to it. We've seen that. But he also says in verse 2 that it's something that was promised. Promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. He's thinking there, of course, about the Old Testament So what he is proclaiming, it's not a matter of personal invention, but neither is it a matter of recent innovation. It is something that God has promised long ago, something that God began to lay down the the tram lines for in ages past, tram lines that would lead us to a destination, no, rather tram lines that would take us to a person. We see it, first of all, in Genesis 12, where God announces his desire to Abraham to make a great nation through him, and yet through him to bless all of the peoples of the earth, all of them. And you have there the beginnings of the promise of a kingdom, a kingdom that God would establish. And then later on, as we march through those Old Testament scriptures, we read how God promised that he would give a king to this kingdom. And then when you enter into the prophets, especially when you enter into Isaiah several times, the word gospel is used to announce the coming of the king who would save his people from their captivity. So in the Old Testament, you know that that a people, that a kingdom is, is promised, that a king is promised, one that will somehow be for all nations. You get that. But what you do not get clearly is how that will be accomplished. When would this king arrive? How would he save the nations? How would he bring men and women into his eternal kingdom? It was promised but not fully realized. It was, if you like, a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. Or the Old Testament, it gives you the the corners and the frame perhaps, but you need the new to get the whole picture and it only really falls into place when we put in the last segment, which is Jesus. And when you see that, when you see that, well then you see. You see everything before in the light of that. See Psalm 22, which begins with that desperate cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
We see in the picture of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who was pierced for our transgressions. We see things that could only have been written about Jesus that only find their their meaning in him. So all that is promised in the old, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So we need not go looking for any other revelation. There is no other. Because the gospel of God, which was promised long ago, it centers on, verse 3, it concerns God's Son. There Paul is speaking about the eternal Son of God. About the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh and the wonder of the incarnation. And he's talking about how this Son became our Jesus And so if we're not talking about this Jesus, if we're not pointing men and women to him, then whatever else we might be talking about, we are not talking about the gospel of God and no one can be saved through our message. You know, think about it. It is actually possible to say a lot of things, a lot of good and worthwhile things about church, about CU, about the difference that God makes in your life, about the Bible even. But if we are not talking about the Son, if we are not taking people to Jesus, we are not talking about the message through which people are saved. Think about John 3.16. Perhaps one of the most well-known verses in the whole of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. What an amazing thought. What an encouraging thought because it includes you and it includes me because we are part of this world. So what an amazing thought, what an amazing thing to be able to share with people. God loves you. But it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel, it is the reason for the gospel. But we can preach and share that God loves men and women forever and yet find that no one is saved because the gospel is about the Son It's about the son whom God gave up out of his great love in order that none need perish, but that all might discover eternal life. So hey, tell them about Jesus. Tell them about Jesus this week. Not CU, not church, not events, not experiences. Tell them about the Son. His virgin birth, his sinless life, his atoning death, his resurrection, victory, his ascension, reign. Tell them, tell them, tell them. Tell them about Jesus. And tell them that they need to know not just about him. But that they need to know him. 
that we are offering them, not a, not a formula for a better life, but a friendship. Not rules or regulations for living, but a relationship. That we are not just holding out facts for consideration, but are inviting men and women to come to a personal, trusting, delighting relationship with them, a union with Christ which is real, which is blood-bought and spirit-wrought. So not facts, but faith, which is a personal trust in the person of whom those facts are true. Yeah, but what facts, you might say? What, Jesus, is it that we're offering? Well, not just any old Jesus, but the one that is revealed in the Bible. Because, you see, plenty of people are prepared to say plenty of things about Jesus. Muslims are prepared to call him a prophet. Many secularists today are prepared to acknowledge him as a teacher. But the Jesus that we must believe in, the Jesus that we must call others to believe in, is the one of the Bible. And Paul, Paul here gives us two big things about this Jesus. Number one, he says in his human life, in his human life he came to be qualified as a king, that he was descended from David. God promised to King David that he would have a son, that he would have a descendant who would be God's eternal king and who would reign forever. But the question was left hanging, who would that be? Not David, not Solomon who came after him. He achieved many great things, but he died. And then after him, well, the kingdom went to pot. So when, so who, so Jesus In his incarnation, because as to his human end, he was born of Mary. He was born into the family of Joseph, both of whom were from the tribe of David. But more than that, says Paul, when he died for our sins and broke through death and the resurrection, he was declared, he was declared with power to be the Son of God, pointing not only to his humanity, but also to his divinity. Paul's not saying here, of course, that Jesus somehow only became God's son when he was raised from the grave. Rather, he's saying that his resurrection and his ascension were the path to his rightful place at God's right hand where he is vindicated and where he is given the name that is above every name, the name at which every knee shall bow. And unlike so many kings, Unlike so many rulers who have come and gone and who will come and go, whether in North Korea or North America, this king is marked by perfect humility, perfect self-sacrifice. He gave himself up. He bled to death for his subjects. God's son became a man, tasted poverty, endured rejection, suffered a powerless death, but was vindicated in the resurrection and now reigns triumphantly. And Paul, Paul summarizes this for us by giving us four words at the end of verse four, where he says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
And in many ways, they're a summary of everything that he's been saying so far. Because Jesus, Jesus is the historical man. He is the carpenter from Galilee. He is the one who made chairs, who taught with authority, who performed stunning miracles, who was publicly crucified. Where is Christ? Well, Christ is his title. It means the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised king that God has appointed to rule his people. And he is also our Lord. who has risen to be the divine ruler and judge of all. So the gospel is good news because it is about this this crucified man, this long-promised Savior, this now reigning Lord. And this declaration, Jesus is Lord, is good news for all because this is a Lord who who loves and who pursues and who saves all who will come to him. This is a Lord who, whatever your background this morning, is for you and loves you. And Paul says that it is through him, verse 5, and for his name's sake, that we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles, that is from throughout the world, from every age, from every background, from every social class, from every culture, this gospel is for you because this Christ is for you. But says someone, how does it actually work? Well, if you'll allow me just a little bit more time, fast forward with me to verses 16 and 17. They they, they summarize, and, and they're absolutely crucial to our understanding of the book of Romans, but actually of the gospel of God. If you haven't already, I encourage you, commit them to memory. Because they're gold. And because they take us to the very heart of Paul's message and because they take us to the very heart of God's gospel. I'm not ashamed, says Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. I'm not ashamed, he says. And he says it, no doubt, and David's prayer reflected this for us, no doubt, because he knows, he's very aware of the pressures that there always are in every age and every culture to make us ashamed. It's always true. There's always personal pressures or social pressures that can bear down upon us to make us feel embarrassed or ashamed. The word literally means offended by the gospel. And we understand that. Or at least we should if we really understand what God is saying in it. Again, not just I love you. No one's really going to be offended if you go out and say, you know what, God loves you. But I love you so much that I have sent my son to be your savior. 
well, I'm sure you've had conversations like I have that go something like this. Well, that's, well, that's awful nice. <laughs> but what do I need saving from? The idea that contemporary men and women need a savior, that is the idea that is inherently offensive because most people think, you know what, I'm basically a good person. Maybe the guy next door, maybe the girl in the hall room next to me, but not me. And of course, what we're saying is not just that men and women need a a savior as in some swashbuckling superhero, a James Bond, Daniel Craig type figure. But actually what we're saying is you need a crucified Savior who when he died on the cross, he died in your place. What? What are they saying? You're saying I deserve that? Well, then you begin to see the offense, don't you? But if we are to be faithful, then then yes, we are saying that. We can say more than that, but we can never say less than that. And Paul goes on to make clear that this applies to everyone, to, to the externally right living people that he refers to in chapter 3, but also to those whose lives outwardly and openly invite condemnation, especially condemnation from the externally right living people. That's chapter 2. And not only that, we're saying that your predicament is so bad that you can do nothing to save yourself. All of your best attempts are doomed to failure. You need this crucified Savior. And what is more, you can only receive him as a gift from heaven. For many, that is offensive. It's offensive to atheists who say there is no God and therefore you are accountable to no one. It's offensive to the merely religious because it says, you know what? Your moral superiority, your codes, your rituals, they're not good enough. And of course, it is offensive to the liberal who says, no, it's just not kind. It's just not loving. It's not the kind of God I want to believe in. It's offensive to the mindset who says the very idea of judgment is abhorrent. It's offensive to many. And as those kinds of worldview hold upper sway in our culture, well, it's easy to get embarrassed, isn't it? It's easy to get ashamed. What does that look like in practice? Well, when we're silent, when we know we should speak up, when we don't want to come across yet again as the weird one in the group, when we don't want to risk that friendship, when we are tempted to water down some element of God's word to smooth off the rough edges, and when we live as though we are those who have it all worked out instead of sinners who are saved by grace and deeply aware of it. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation 
of everyone who believes this message that we have. Listen to this. It is God's power. Think about it. That is amazing. God is all of the power that there is in the universe at his disposal. And yet it is through his gospel message that he chooses to bring salvation to men and women. And it doesn't just contain power or point to power. Paul says here it is the power. It is the power of God for salvation. The the meaning of the words that we share when we share them faithfully changes people. Effectively saves people from hell for heaven, forever, as enabled by the Spirit of God. Men hear these words and turn and put their trust in this message. Believing is the way you receive it. You don't need to do anything. Just believe in the gospel. If you like, relax into this gospel. Believe it and allow God to pull you to safety, to pull you to himself, to pull you to paradise. Trust it. Embrace it. And you'll discover it. You'll discover it to be power. The fifth century theologian, Theodorat. There's a name. He likened the gospel to a fiery chili pepper. He said, looking at it cold on a kitchen table, it's a, it's a lifeless thing. But if you would but bite into it, you would discover that there is fire there. So he said, it is with the gospel. Looking on at it from the outside, it's just like words. And what can words do? but believe it, embrace it, trust in it, and you will discover it to be life-transforming. But lastly, how does it do that? How does it save us? Verse 17, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, is how the NIV puts it. And here righteousness means goodness. And God is that. God is that absolutely. So to be with him, to be in heaven, we also need to be like that. The Bible tells us he's holy, he's a consuming fire, and we can't come into his presence with our filthiness, with our unrighteousness. So if you need to be good, if you need to be truly good to get into heaven, and none of us are truly good, how can we be made right? Well, historically, humanity has responded to that in one of two ways. Either with misplaced religious zeal or with equally misplaced secular skepticism. So with religious zeal, different cultures have evolved different religious systems whereby if you follow certain teaching, if you behave in certain ways, if you perform certain rituals, 
Well, you steadily get to do what Luther tried to do. You get to climb the rungs of the ladder towards heaven. You become better and better and better until you hope that you're good enough for God. The problem is that it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It creates fear for those who know they are failing and pride in those who think they are succeeding. Secular skepticism, on the other hand, just denies the problem. Either by diminishing God or or, or by exalting ourselves or by both. So humanity is basically good and getting better all the while. And God, if he exists at all, is a God we can make in our own image who will accept everyone. One tries to climb the ladder to heaven. The other says there's probably no heaven at all. But in the gospel, in the gospel, we discover that there is a God who is holy, who is righteous, and who is good, and who loves us so passionately that he came down into our world. In the person of his son, he lived the perfect life that we have not lived. And he lived it for us. God became a man in order to live a life without blemish, the kind of life that we can't live. And so he has provided the righteousness that we need. God looked at us in our need and has given us what we need in Jesus. And so we talk about it, don't we, as the great exchange. The great exchange that lies at the heart of the gospel, whereby Christ, he took to himself in his body all of our sins, all of our demerits, all of our faults, all of our failings, all of our unrighteousness, and he endured hell for us. But he also gives to us his beautiful, perfect righteousness so that we are not just forgiven for sins past and we get to start again with a clean sheet from ground zero but we are made right made right by the righteous life of Jesus and united to that life through faith That was the discovery that Luther made in the 16th century, which lit a spark not only in his own heart, but the spark that became the great flame of the Reformation. That the righteousness that God requires is us, is not us working really hard to make ourselves right with him, but is God giving his righteousness to us in Christ and that we can receive this through faith. Well, thank you again for the chance to be with you. I can't believe for the moment that I have told you anything new, anything novel, anything you didn't know already. But I thank you for the opportunity to remind myself and to remind us all of the gospel of God, of how it is for all and of how in it and through it we can come to know God.
Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take your word and that you would do that work which only you can do, that you would apply it to our hearts, that we might know it to be true. Lord, that we might not live as those who are ashamed or embarrassed in a culture that increasingly seems to set its face against the things of Christ, but rather, Lord, these moments that we have had might have served in some small way, Lord, to strengthen our hope, to give us more courage, to grant to us a greater certainty of the hope that we have and of the hope that we are called to hold out to others. I pray for this church in this place, Lord. I thank you for her rich, faithful legacy. And I pray that as new chapters are yet to be written, they will be ones of gospel faithfulness and gospel fruitfulness. And I pray for those who make up this congregation. Lord, that you would help us to live lives that are demonstrably not ashamed of the gospel. Pray especially for those in our universities who are so involved in the events weeks and the events week that's to be uh, taking place through this week. Lord, that you might bless them, that you might use them, that you might encourage them. And that, Lord, through holding out faithfully this simple gospel truth, Lord, you might work in such a way that they have the joy of seeing not just ones and twos, that they might have the joy of not just recording spiritual conversations, but that they might have the joy this week of seeing their friends, of seeing young men and women, not just from this land, but from all nations, turn and trust in Christ. For we ask this in the precious and in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.